So uh, actually last week I was supposed to preach, but what happened is that literally an hour before worship service start, was to start, I was um, laying down in the bathroom, cradling my head, hoping the world would stop spinning. I think I had food poisoning, just intense nausea. And after 30 minutes of this, I told Christina, you're going to have to let everybody know, I don't think I can make it. <laughs> and so it was, um, I really apologize for that. Uh, I really want to thank the staff for rolling with the punches. And I want to especially thank John, who preached with no preparation, 30 minutes warning on the fly. It's not an easy task to do, so I'm really grateful. All right. Um, so we're doing a sermon series in Deuteronomy. And this is actually going to be the second to last sermon in Deuteronomy before we take a break. Um, in November, we're going to do a sermon series in Proverbs on relationships. And then we're going to do a short Christmas series. And then starting in the new year, we're going to come back to Deuteronomy. And we're going to do a completely new section because starting in chapter 12, we're going to look at what are called the case laws. These are all the specific rules that uh, regulate uh, the economic life of Israel, uh, marriage and family relations, um, things, regulation of things like slavery, the treatment of war captives, which I know raises a lot of questions. And we're going to dive right into them. We're not going to avoid any difficult issue. And I hope it's going to be stimulating and edifying and the goal is that it will strengthen your faith in Christ. But today we're going to look at our text. And um, we're now nearing the end of Moses' extended uh, sermon uh, where he's appealing to the people for a life of obedience. And I'm going to preach on the first uh, half of chapter 11, which can be organized into three paragraphs. They're basically each talking about overlapping but different things. And so... Uh, the sermon's going to be a little bit disjointed. Please bear with me. Um, but let's read our text. So it's in your bulletin. I'll read to you starting in, chapter, in verse 1. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. And consider today, since I am not speaking to your children who have not known or seen it, consider the discipline of the Lord your God his greatness, his mighty hand and his outstretched arm, his signs and his deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to all his land, and what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after you, and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day, and what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place, and what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, son of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them with their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them in the midst of all Israel. For your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord, of the Lord that he did. You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you are going over to possess, that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, and to their offspring, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land that you are entering to take possession of, of it is not like the land of Egypt, 
from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens, so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. This is the word of God. So I have three points matching the three paragraphs. Number one, we're going to look at the discipline of the Lord. It's going to be about half of the sermon. Number two, we're going to look at dependence on God. And then finally, we're going to ask this question, is Deuteronomy about grace or is it about the law? So let's begin the discipline of the Lord. So in verse two, Moses says, consider the discipline of the Lord. So let's first ask, what is discipline? This is not just a religious concept, but you see it in the world of sports. It's in the military. It's uh, in academics. In fact, in every worthwhile endeavor requires discipline. So here's the definition. Discipline is enduring pain and difficulty in the short run for the purposes of training so that in the long run it'll go well with you so that you will experience flourishing and success listen to the way hebrews 12:11 puts it for in the moment that's the short term all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it So the goal of Christian discipline is the peaceful fruit of righteousness, which is this life full of godliness and joy and wisdom, all these good things. But nobody just arrives there, but you get there through the hard work of training and discipline. So what is what does this discipline actually look like? Right? What is this discipline of the Lord? And Moses here gives us three categories. You could think of them as three lessons from the past. We're going to look at the Exodus. We're going to look at the wilderness. And then we're going to look at the story of Dathan and Abiram. So first, the lesson of the Exodus. So if you look starting at the middle of verse 2, let me read it for you. Consider the discipline of the Lord your God, His greatness his mighty hand and his outstretched arm, his signs and his deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and to all his land, and what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and to their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after you, 
and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day. So, what is the lesson of the Exodus? It was to show Israel the rescuing power of God, that he is mighty to save, because Israel faced this formidable enemy, truly the greatest superpower of its day, all the military might of Egypt arrayed against little Israel, and it seemed like Israel was surely doomed. It seemed impossible, but what is impossible for man, all things are possible with God, and there is nothing he cannot do. And what a great comfort that is for all of us. Because in this life, you will face all kinds of obstacles and difficulties. And so often they will seem impossible. It will seem like you are surely doomed. There is no way out. Your back is against the Red Sea. The Egyptian chariots are bearing down on you. And you will feel utterly powerless, alone, and forsaken. But I want you to know that the Lord will fight for you. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to stand still and see the mighty hand of God working in your life. Do you think, if you are a child of God, that any kind of ultimate harm could even so much as touch you? And the answer is no. These are but trials and tribul. Let me pause. These are but trials and tribulations that God has permitted in your life for your good, for your flourishing, and therefore you can trust Him. And therefore keep obeying Him, keep loving Him, no matter what the circumstances. So that's the lesson of the Exodus. Secondly, the lesson of the wilderness. Moses writes, verse 5. Do you have technical issues? Okay. Can you still hear me? Yes. Okay. Do you want to adjust the camera? Okay. Um, all right. It's just the camera. Your sound is flexible. Do you want to move forward? And... I don't think okay. Apparently, the live stream is blank other than the sound, so I will continue. Okay. I will be careful not to step on that wire. All right, so that's the lesson of the Exodus. The lesson of the wilderness, Moses writes, verse 5, and consider what he did to you in the wilderness. So what is the lesson of the wilderness? It is Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. We should all have this memorized. God let you hunger so that you might know the man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
You see, the wilderness is the place where God takes away the good things, the good things in your life, so that you might know the all-satisfying sufficiency of God. See, in this life, God will permit seasons of barrenness and emptiness and loss. Why? So that he might purify and refine your heart. You see, he's removing good things. They're not, and they're, they're good things. They're not bad things. But he's removing the good things in your life, which, if left alone, would become idols in your life, so that you might have a pure heart, a sincere faith, that you might be wholly devoted to him. That's what he's doing in the wilderness. And so the wilderness is the place where you sink down your roots deep into God if you let the medicine do its work. So that's the lesson of the wilderness. And so are you starting to see this theme? The purpose of discipline is to protect you from harm. The lesson of the exodus is to protect you from the harm of external threats. The lesson of the wilderness is to protect you from the corruption within your own hearts. And then the third lesson, the lesson of Dathan and Abiram, is to protect you from the threats within the community of God. So let's look at the verse, verse 6. And consider what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, son of Reuben, and how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them in the midst of all Israel. So this is a very strange and shocking story. The full details are given to us in number 16. It's very fascinating. I encourage you to read it on your own at home. But let me give you a very brief summary. Number 16 records one of the most serious and deadly rebellions in the history of Israel. And it started with this small circle of three people. Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Korah is named first. And so theologians refer to this as Korah's rebellion. And what happened is that after years and years of wandering in the wilderness, Korah, Dathan, and Abiram had reached this place of high frustration. And they were angry. And they were disgruntled. And they leveled these charges against Moses and against Aaron. And it was a wide range of objections, some of them theological. They accused uh, them of abusing their power, of fraudulent leadership. And they said, we want change. We want new leaders. We want a new direction. Now, what made this rebellion so serious is that it did not stay contained. But Korah, Dathan, and Abiram gathered around them followers. And the text tells us that 250 men of stature, leaders in the community, they got caught up in this and then they joined the the rebellion. And so what was happening is that the conflict was spreading. Paul says a little leaven leavens the whole lump so that there were factions forming. People were choosing sides. And it was a very serious 
situation because Israel was on the brink of self-destruction. And the danger was not coming from without, from the Egyptians or, you know, later the Philistines. The danger was coming from within. Israel was about to tear itself apart. And so Israel, as this unified people, was at this moment of maximum danger. And then what happens is that Moses appeals to Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, and he calls on them to meet for dialogue. And he was appealing to them for reconciliation, and really he was appealing to them to repent, to change their posture. But the text tells us they refuse to meet. Instead, they level even more angry accusations. They defy, they reject the authority of Moses and Aaron so that it was clear there was no further recourse. Moses had done everything he could. And so he cries out to God. And the text says that the glory of the Lord came down in the midst of Israel and God instructs the people, stand apart. Stand away from Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. But the 250 would not. And then the text says that the earth opened up. And these three men, along with the 250, along with all of their families, along with all of their tents and possessions, they were swallowed up into the earth. And so they perished. They perished. And that's the story. And Moses says, remember, remember the lesson of Dathan and Abiram. So what are we supposed to do with this story? It's an awful story. It's a dark and frightening story. How does this apply to the church? Let me draw out two points of application. So first, I think we can see in the story a warning. And it's a warning about the dangers of conflict and disunity in the church. You know, it's remarkable when you read the New Testament, how often you see these appeals for unity. Let me give you a sample. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul writes, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, Be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And there is one body and one Spirit, one Lord and one faith. And there are many other such passages. So what does it say that you see this appeal for unity all throughout the New Testament. In fact, you cannot read an epistle without coming across this appeal. And it tells us, obviously, the early church struggled with unity. This was a constant problem for the church because there were all kinds of controversies and disagreements. And you know, sometimes it was because of misunderstandings and miscommunication And here I want to make a distinction between good conflict and bad conflict. Because, hear me now, not all conflict is bad. You know, a a healthy church will have 
Let me pause for this this plane. I know not everyone is bothered by engine noise, but I, I, it's, it's hard for me to, to think with background noise. All right. So, so here, let me let me emphasize that not all conflict is bad. Truly, a healthy church will foster healthy disagreements, and we don't all have to agree. There's all kinds of strategic decisions that we face as a church. How do we address this problem? How do we address that problem? And and sometimes it'll become heated arguments. But if we do it with a spirit of mutual respect, we do it with humility and submission, with common theological groundings, then that will build up the church. But there is also bad conflict. There is also destructive conflict where you have angry accusations, where you have abusive speech. The New Testament calls this reviling, where you have this breakdown in trust, where people refuse to meet with one another like Dathan and Abiram, where you have this atmosphere that you could just feel of hostility and suspicion. And that kind of conflict is fatal to the church. And so that's the first thing. I think this is a warning uh, uh, about conflict in the church. But let me draw out a second application. Because I think we should also consider that sometimes conflict is not just because of misunderstandings but because there are antagonists in the church. Notice in the story that the judgment of God comes down on Dathan and Abiram. And what makes the story so distressing is that Dathan and Abiram were fellow Israelites. They were not pagan foreigners persecuting the church from outside, but they were hostile agents sowing discord from within the community of God. And we need to be sober-minded about this. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, Jesus speaks of wolves in sheep's clothes. Wolves in sheep's clothes. It's a very vivid metaphor. Jesus says there are wolves, but they look like sheep because they're dressed in the clothing of sheep. In fact, they identify themselves as sheep, but Jesus says they are wolves. What is going on? If you read the New Testament, you see all kinds of warnings about false teachers, false prophets who misuse and twist scripture for their own agenda, who sow division and discord. Let me pause. The New Testament, right, speaks of false teachers, false prophets 
who twist scripture for their own agenda and who sow division and discord. Paul describes them this way in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Listen to this. They have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people. So you might say, then what should we do in the face of this threat? And the answer is, we must be vigilant. We have to be discerning. And that means don't jump to conclusions. Take the necessary time to pray and to observe. But we must always be alert. And this is particularly a charge for the elders of the church. The elders are the shepherds of the flock. And the job of a shepherd is to protect the sheep. And you protect the sheep by looking out for wolves. Wolves that lie outside of the church. And wolves, as Jesus says, that are inside of the church. Listen to what Paul writes in Romans 16, verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, Paul says. Avoid them. So this is the discipline of the Lord. Hebrews 12.10 God disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. And this holiness is not a private holiness, but it is a, a corporate holiness. I feel like this is the record Sunday of planes uh, traversing our park. I... All right, so that's the discipline of the Lord. That's the first paragraph. Let's go to the second paragraph, dependence on God. So if you look at the second paragraph, Moses is comparing the land of Egypt to the land of Canaan. And he says that the land of Egypt is like a vegetable garden that you irrigate. Literally, the, ver- the word in verse 10 means that you dig water with your foot. And the reason is because in Egypt, they had the Nile River, which was this very regular flow of water that they could control more or less with intensive labor. This is why there were slaves in Egypt. But, Moses says in verse 11, the land of Canaan is a land of hills and valley where the water does not come from below, you know, this this massive river flowing through the middle of the land, but it comes from above, from the heavens, through rainfall. And as Californians, we all know that rain is very temperamental. There's a lot of variability, a lot of unpredictability when it comes to the rain. And so what Moses is doing, I think this is really profound. He's drawing a theological distinction between the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan. He says the land of Egypt is a land where life comes from human effort and human engineering, where you can control, in some sense, the elements. But life in the land of Canaan is dependent on these unpredictable weather patterns that the people have no control over and therefore their life depends in a very overt and very obvious way on dependence on God. 
if we had more time, I, I would really want to unpack this because I think this is really profound. And here's the question I want to ask you. The modern world, is the modern world more like the land of Canaan or is it more like the land of Egypt? So you and I, we live in a, in a world that is manufactured, that is based on human engineering, so that through technology, we have this sense of control and mastery over nature. I mean, here we are, we are in the middle of a massive multi-year drought, which ordinarily would produce famine and great human suffering, but we enjoy uninterrupted food supply. And so all of us growing up in the Bay Area or living in the Bay Area, we have this this confident sense that the future is predictable. We can make projections about the economy. We can plan out our lives. We can engineer our future. This is the day I'm going to retire. This is how much I'm going to have for retirement. You know, uh, this is when I'm going to get married, when I'm going to have children. All of these plans and projections But the Bible says it's an illusion. It's an illusion. The Bible says that every moment of our life, every breath that we take is dependent on God. Hebrews 1.3 says that God upholds every single one of us so that moment by moment He is sustaining us. He is carrying us, so to speak, in His arms. And the moment He should let go, we would cease to exist. You and I, we are not self-determining creatures, but everything we have is a gift from God. About five years ago, I had a fairly significant health scare. I've shared this story before. Um, It's a little bit graphic. I'm sorry, it's kind of gross, but please bear with me. But what happened is one day suddenly, I had blood in my urine. And what happened is that one day I went to the bathroom and um, my urine looked like fruit punch. And I remember thinking, that's rather odd. (laughs) That doesn't happen. And it persisted for several days. So I finally went to the doctor. He took a sample. He looked under the microscope. He came back looking very grim, very grim. And he said to me, this is blood. You have a condition called hematuria. And thus began this really long, rambling journey through the healthcare system. I saw a urologist. I saw two nephrologists. And at one point, a doctor said, this might be cancer. And literally, I did not hear a single word he said after that, because I just went into complete shock. And for the next two weeks, the diagnosis was uncertain. And I want you to know, those were sleepless nights for me. It was a very anxious period of my life. And then the tests and the scans came back. And it was not cancer. But then for a long time, the doctors thought that I had some very serious kidney disease. And I want you to know that the whole time I was bleeding. And it lasted for nine months. And every time I went to the bathroom, it felt like I was dying. It felt like I was bleeding out. And then finally, at the end of nine months, suddenly, the bleeding stopped, just like that. 
The doctors, they're not exactly sure, but they believe it was a kind of aneurysm, a thinning of the blood vessels. And then finally, my kidneys clotted up and I'm okay. I'm in the clear. I remember that whole time I would pray. And they were desperate prayers. And I would say, Lord, please spare my life. And I was thinking about my boys, how they need a father. And I realized in that time that something so basic like your health, you have so little control over. And I remember praying, Lord, even if you should extend my life for a single year, it would be a gift. And I remember it was this clarifying moment because I remember thinking it's ridiculous to worry about the petty things in this life. And then suddenly, my body was restored to full health. And all the dire scenarios that I had been contemplating, I was going to be on a dialysis machine for the rest of my life, I was going to die this early death, all of that was off the table. And I remember I was so happy I was so full of thanksgiving and praise to God. And I remember saying to myself, every year from this point on is a gift. I will never take it for granted. And then you know what's really tragic and almost comedic is that I hardly ever think about it now. Except for the occasional sermon illustration, my brain has completely reverted back to the old patterns, which is, I worry about the petty things of this life. What am I going to eat today? What am I going to wear? Why is that? You know why? Because the default mode of the human heart is self-absorption. We're so constantly just looking down at the smallness of our lives that we never look up to see the grandeur and the greatness of God And just the sheer miracle of life. Every day, moment by moment, you are sustained by God. By His power and His grace. That is an incontrovertible fact. And the only question is, do you acknowledge it? Do you give Him the praise and thanksgiving, which is His due? Or do you believe you belong to yourself? Here's the question. Do you live in the land of Canaan or do you live in the land of Egypt? That's the question. Finally, third point, is Deuteronomy Deuteronomy ultimately of grace or is it ultimately of law? So in the third paragraph, verse 13, God says, if, if you obey my commandments, then verse 14, I will bring the rain. Then there will be wine, grain, and oil in your storehouses. But if you serve other gods, verse 17, then the heavens will shut, the land will bear no fruit, and you will surely perish from the land. Do you know what that is? That's the logic of the law. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. Very straightforward. It's the logic of the law. But then, if you just go back one chapter to chapter 10, you may remember this. God instructs Moses to reconstruct, to reconstitute the tablets of stone 
even after Israel had worshipped the golden calf. And this is an incredible like, symbol of, of God renewing the covenant of his lavish grace, of his unmerited mercy and forgiveness to Israel. So which is it? Which is it? Is it conditional blessing based on obedience to the law? Or is it unconditional blessing based on God's election and his unbreakable love for us? They are two very different principles. In other words, is the Mosaic Covenant fundamentally about God's grace or is it about human obedience? This is the central tension in the book of Deuteronomy. And reading the book of Deuteronomy is a little bit schizophrenic because it alternates from chapter to chapter, sometimes from verse to verse. And so what are we to make of it? And the answer, here's the answer, it's both. Of course, it has to be. We see both elements in the book, which makes no sense at all until you get to the New Testament. One of the most important chapters in the Bible is Galatians chapter 3, I think. Um, Paul in Galatians 3 explains how the Mosaic Covenant works. One of these days, we're going to do a deep dive in the book. But let me just read you verses 11 through 13. Listen to how Paul, how he resolves this problem, okay? Verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. What Paul is saying is that the law doesn't save you. Morality, obedience, moral performance, all of these things cannot save you. And then he gets to verse 12, listen to this. But the law is not of faith, right? It's, the law is about obedience. It's about moral performance. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. He quotes Leviticus 18.5. Basically, you always get what you deserve. If you obey God, you will live. If you disobey, you will die. So how does he resolve this problem? How does he resolve the tension? Verse 13, listen to the answer. He says, Christ. That's the answer. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, he quotes Deuteronomy 21:23, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. He's talking about the cross. And that's the answer. The answer is the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ fulfilled both the blessings and the curses of Deuteronomy. So that the Mosaic Covenant is absolutely based on human obedience. But it's not our obedience. It's the obedience of Christ who lived the life he should have lived. We should have lived. He's the only human being who has perfectly kept Torah law. All 613 laws down to the bottom, down all the way to the end. He obeyed them perfectly. And the Mosaic Covenant is ultimately absolutely based on grace. In John 5:46, Jesus says this. Listen, it's remarkable. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Jesus is every page, every verse of Deuteronomy is about me. It's about my rescuing love. 
people always wonder, why did Jesus have to die? Why can't God just forgive us? Why can't God just say, I forgive you? And the answer is, what about God's justice? See, only the cross perfectly satisfies the justice of God so that His mercy and grace can be poured out on sinners like you and me. See, on the cross, God's justice and God's grace perfectly kiss. That's the gospel. Do you see, do you understand the the brilliance, just the beauty of the cross? Please join me in prayer. Almighty God, we pray along with Jesus' prayer in John 17, make us one as you are one. But make our unity based not on cultural affinity or ethnic sameness or political convergence, which is the basis of the unity of the world, which is no unity at all because we see all the strife and discord in the world where people hate each other. They disdain one another. But it must not be in the church. Lord, let our unity be based on Christ, on a common experience of grace, that we are sinners and yet we are loved by Jesus Christ dying on the cross and that would bind us together in humility and unity. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.